All right. Good to see everybody. Hey, we'll be, um, while you're being seated, I want the leadership council to come up. Kathy Gilliland, where are you? We want to give an update. This is our illustrious leadership council. You guys can be seated. And this is Kathy Gilliland, our spokesperson tonight. So they're going to catch us up on what's going on this summer and let you know what's happening right now. a season for learning for me, and we as a council have been working diligently to make Grace Point the best that it can be. That's not always an easy task, because we can never make everyone happy. We have been looking for a new location, and I can truthfully tell you there isn't much out there to see. We looked at three properties last week. One was too expensive, one required too much work, and the other was in Old Hickory. It's a bit like the nursery story, Three Bears, but we will keep looking for the perfect fit. We have missed having regular services, and we have missed each of you. We have also heard from you and know that you miss church. It was a difficult decision to make for the summer, but it has given us a chance to realize more than ever how important this community is. There is nothing like it in Nashville, and we are all so grateful to be a part of it. In fact, we have been working so hard that we are prepared to start back on a regular basis in August instead of September. Our first service is scheduled for August the 12th. While we continue the search for a new home that would allow us to meet on Sunday mornings, we have made a decision to stay at Unity and move our services to Sunday night while we are still here. Unity has been incredibly gracious to us, and they even lowered our monthly payment during these summer months. We are currently renegotiating what our rent will be in the future. As many of you know, our financial situation has been less than ideal. Stan reached out to Crosspoint recently and was able to receive some additional funds to tide us over and enable us to make some of the upcoming changes. We recently received a lump sum of $50,000 with an additional $50,000 to come over the next few months. This money is an advance toward the purchase of the building, which will happen sometime in the next two years. This influx of cash has allowed us to cover payroll and pay bills while our giving has been down. In the coming weeks, you will start to see and hear subtle but important changes to enhance our services during this transition time. Our hope is that as our services resume, our giving will too. In addition to searching for property all summer, the council and staff have been working to cut our budget wherever possible. Stan has been working tirelessly to get our name out to as many people as possible. Lisa has been working on making our children's ministry the best that it can be. And Matt has been busy writing songs with Wendy Childs that reflect our progressive message. 
In fact, one of their songs just won the songwriting contest at Wild Goose. Woo! <laughs> the staff has also been meeting frequently to come up with better ways to serve our community. On another note, I would like to update you on our service project for the summer. Grace Point has had volunteers serving each Thursday with the South Nashville Refugee Program. This amazing program is run by our own Jocelyn Taylor and her parents. We have had a wonderful time serving lunch to the children and providing much needed items to the families. We are coming to a close of this project and looking forward to our next. In August, we will be collecting household items and furniture for Cheryl's List. This is a nonprofit in East Nashville that provides these items to our homeless neighbors that are getting into housing. In the next couple of weeks, you will see more about this opportunity on our Facebook page, as well as our website and email. We hope that you take the time to go through your home and see what you might have and that you'd be willing to part with. We want to thank Elka Hoffman for her hard work in the past year as the leader of the social justice team. Currently, I am overseeing our service projects and would love your input. If you have a project that you would like us to consider, please let us know. This is a very important part of our community and I would love everyone's thoughts. Thank you once again. Welcome to Grace Point. Welcome home. All the kids are heading out. Um, Jeff Clark, one of our illustrious leadership council members who also runs the Wild Goose Festival, reminded me the other day that not only did Matt and Wendy win the contest with the number one song, and there were a lot of songs, dozens of songs entered by a lot of talented people, actually they won second, third, and fourth. Four of the songs that they've written over the last couple of months were at the top of the heap. And just, just a reminder of what we already know, that we've got some talented people around here that are doing great work for us. So thanks to the council for that update, and I hope everybody stays around for our potluck next. We're going to, do we still call them potlucks? Is there a better word for that? Is that good, potluck? Did y'all all grow up with potlucks in the fellowship hall at church? Yeah? Oh, good. Three of you did. I remember potlucks where I, I was always dubious to the food of other mothers, and my brother and sister and I would always line up and just eat our mom's food because it was the safest, we thought. But uh, all of our food is safe here, so we hope you guys will stick around with us. And before we take um, time to do that supper, we're going to do the Lord's Supper. So let me talk to you a little bit about that subject, the subject of the Lord's Supper. Some of you come from backgrounds that refer to the Lord's Supper as communion. Some called it Holy Communion. Some called it the Eucharist. Some of you come from traditions where you receive the Lord's Supper once a week. Uh, my mentor, uh, Carol, you remember old Buck Rambo, he used to the last three years of his life, he took the Lord's Supper every day, and it was healing and profound for him. Uh, we, in the tradition that I was a part of, there were actually a portion of our denomination that were called spiritual communion 
people, and they never took a literal Lord's Supper. Uh, they believed that it was a spiritualized concept that the church had moved beyond. We were almost spiritual communion in a way because we took the Lord's Supper once a year, and it was a very ominous event. The part of the text that was most emphasized to us was the capacity of people to take the Lord's Supper. Do you remember this? To take the Lord's Supper unworthily. And so every year on New Year's Eve, our church would gather together, and we would cleanse our hearts, and we would move toward this ominous, foreboding moment somewhere near midnight where we would take the Lord's Supper. And it always felt like the priest going into the holy place and almost feeling like if our hearts weren't exactly pure that we might get killed and they would have to drag us out of there. It was just that scary of an experience. Um, but the experience of the Lord's Supper has become something incredibly other than that. Um, a moment ago I mentioned that Jeff, one of our board members here, is also the president, coordinator, curator, everything. He puts on the Wild Goose Festival. Who, For people who don't know what that is, that's a festival in North Carolina, kind of a Lollapalooza, Woodstock, um, Bonnaroo-type Christian festival for progressive, liberal-type Christians. And this year, Jeff, you guys had how many on the grounds at Hot Springs? 4,000 people. And about 3,984 of them camp out, and the other 16 of us had bed and breakfast up on the hill. <laughs> bunch of hippies in that crowd, and it, man, it rains, and they just walk around barefooted and sit in mud puddles. I get lightheaded even watching them do it, so I stayed somewhere where I could keep my feet clean, but it was really a profound, all of my heroes were there, the Brian McLarens and Tony Campolos and others, and Jeff runs that. He's a, his day job is he's a professor at MTSU, has been for 32 years. I don't know how he wedges this in his, his life to run this, but it was the best wild goose that I've ever been to, and one of the things that made it absolutely the best was the way it capped off. Every year, I don't know how it works out, but it seems like of all the stuff that can get dusty and stale, and as difficult it is in that setting to pull off communion, it's always special. And I had actually missed the service leading up to communion and came right at the last minute and saw that communion was happening, and so I jumped in line. And as I stood in line to receive the Lord's Supper, I found myself in a long line. It probably took 10 minutes from start to finish before we got there. And as I was standing there in line, I noticed the woman in front of me, probably my mom's age, maybe early 70s. She was quietly, discreetly, the whole time, just dabbing away tears, not puckered up and crying, just leaking tears, and she had a tissue that was saturated, and for all of the 10 minutes we waited, she just kept trying to dry her eyes. We finally got to the front of the line, and I can't help but wonder, you know, what's going on inside of her heart, and as we were just a few people away from being served, she, I could feel her become increasingly unsettled in this moment. And it was bothersome to me because I just, I, I didn't know what was going on and I could feel that she, I, I don't know, she just needed something. And everything inside of me wanted to check in with her and ask her if she was okay. And I almost did two or three times, but each time I was just checked. And it, it felt more right to me to just leave her with this space and to allow her this struggle. And so I thought better of it, and I just prayed for her peace and tried to send her as much peace as I could. 
It came her turn, and she stepped up, and I watched her as she dipped the bread into the wine. And I can still see her hand as she lifted the bread by intinction out of the wine. Her hand was trembling. It didn't seem to be something that was Parkinson's or a palsy or something that was um, always a part of her life. It seemed to be in the moment. She was just shaken. And she got it to her mouth. She took the bread and the wine, and then she moved away. And as she moved away, I was almost distracted in my own partaking. As I watched her, it looked as she was moving away. She was so emotional, I thought she was either going to explode or collapse. She walked over to where Matt and Wendy, they did a lot of leading at the Goose musically, and they were the stage where they had performed or led. She walked over to that stage right where they had been standing, and she just, I remember she leaned against it. Her eyes were closed, still leaking tears, and I thought at that moment that I really needed to say something. And so I asked a friend of mine nearby for a tissue because I thought that could be an avenue in. And I took the tissues, crumpled them up, and I walked over beside her, and I just slipped them into her hand. I was afraid I was going to startle her, but it was almost as though she knew I was there, and she just opened her eyes so casually through the, the glistening, the tears. She looked at me and smiled, and she whispered, um, thank you. And I told her I had noticed that she was incredibly emotional during communion, and I just wanted to check and see if she was okay. We talked a bit. She tried to set my mind at ease. She told me she had heard me over at the uh, tent when I interviewed Barbara Brown Taylor. And yet I kept wanting to press her back to what was going on. And after a bit of small talk, she told me that she had not been in a church service, Craig, for more than 50 years. And this was the first time that she had received communion in over 50 years. The last time, and Jeff, you'll find this incredibly interesting, especially when I get to the end of the story that includes a conversation you and I had. The last time she had attended a service, she was in her early 20s. And in that service, a small Catholic parish in New England, a New England village somewhere, in that service in her early 20s, she had quote, been devastatingly refused the elements. A cradle Catholic who had been reared in that New England village her entire life, she had earlier that week met with her parish priest. This would have been, what, uh, the late 60s? And she met with him, and she told him that she was transgender. Born male, presenting as male in that moment in her entire life, she had confided in him her own internal torment and that she was going to seek gender reassignment or, as it's being called more appropriately these days, gender confirmation surgeries and treatment when she could ultimately afford the cost. And after telling her priest that the church failed her miserably, and she never returned. She went on to lead a very full and successful life, partnered, had been married for over 40 years, had children and grandchildren. I asked her, why now? Why after 50 years, this church service, the wild goose, why communion today? 
She said a few weeks before she had been diagnosed with early onset dementia. And after that diagnosis and a fear of actual Alzheimer's, she knew that her days were limited and she made a bucket list and near the top of her bucket list was this item to make peace with the church. She said she had made peace with God. She said it was not her intention to return to church forever. She simply wanted to make peace with that that had found itself in gestalt or in a horrible gap some 50 years before. I stood there for a moment, me recognizing the holiness of that moment to be with a person in that scenario. And then it occurred to me, and I asked her if she was aware that the person who had served her the elements was also a transgender woman. Stunned, she looked at me, smiled, began crying more, Jennifer, and said no. She closed her eyes, and I left her there, shaking her head incredulously, disbelieving almost. And it felt appropriate to walk away at that point because it seemed that she was well on her way to finding the peace that she was looking for. I later found out through Jeff that the woman who had served her, he had asked earlier to serve uh, in, the, in the giving, the attending to the elements. And Jeff told me, independent of that story that I just told you, that the woman that he had asked to serve was deeply moved by his request and told him she had been a leader for years as a male in the church, but since that moment, some 12 to 15 years before, she had never been called on to do anything in the church again. And so in that holy exchange of these two people, I was able to witness again one of the reasons that I love the Christian church so much and one of the reasons that communion still holds a place of primacy and centrality and meaning for me. As a, as a Christian, and specifically as a progressive liberal Christian, I am often asked by my parishioners and by my friends what communion or the Lord's Supper means to me. I actually was speaking this morning for a friend of mine in Atlanta, and it's been a long time since their church is even. They're a church that has literally followed our church on inclusion and progressive theology, and they don't do communion a lot because, as the pastor told me, they just don't know exactly where to put it and how to frame it. Uh, Many who have moved from traditional conservative backgrounds find the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper confusing and uncomfortable. They find it confusing and uncomfortable because they knew how to partake one way, substitutionary penal atonement. Uh, There is a fountain filled with blood, a God who needed the sacrifice and the slaughter of His Son to be able to develop some capacity to be able to be with His other children that He longed to forgive but could not be with them without the torturous death of the firstborn. Substitutionary penal atonement was the way that I received the Lord's Supper forever. I was literally drinking the blood of salvation and eating the broken bread of redemption into my body. That is no longer the way I see God. That is no longer the role that I see Jesus playing. That is no longer my ideas of salvation. So what do I do with communion? 
many progressive Christians find it almost cannibalistic or vampirism, someone said to me. We feel like vampires drinking blood, and so we just kind of leave it alone or just skirt through, and I think that's a mistake. The earliest Christian writers, speaking of Jesus, said that He came to us from the heavens above. They called Him the bright and the morning star. It's not strange then that at his birth, this one called the morning star literally had a star, goes the lore, settle above his crib, guiding the gift-bearing priest from afar to that place. Born from above, and somehow the early Christians taught us born from below, born of water, born of spirit, born of the visible, born of the invisible, a sacred mix of two atoms scooped up from the dust of the earth and gathered as the substance of the stars in the frame of a human. This was Jesus. And on the evening before his death, this morning star, this celestial terrestrial one, gathered with his closest friends, this one who came to us from heaven. He gathered with his closest friends for a meal. And as they were finishing that meal, feeling themselves done with the Passover, absolutely oblivious to what was about to happen in the night and then ultimately the next day. His disciples watched Jesus take a remnant, a scrap of the bread there at the table, and He held the bread up. And I suppose they thought He was going to say something about the ancient ritual of Passover or maybe the, 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 the superb quality of the bread that night, but instead He held that piece of bread up. And the Bible said He said to them, that even morning stars could be dimmed. He said to them that even those composed of stardust and the divine, as He tore the bread, even those could experience brokenness. He told them as He held the bread that even the sons and daughters of God who clapped their hands in creation and the stars were formed, He said even sons and daughters of God could die. But then this grandest of constellations, this one called Christ, said that His brokenness, He looked at them and He said, but this brokenness is not for naught. But He said, this bread is broken for you. And those two words are incredibly important, and we may not, we must not lose them. He said, take and eat this bread. Take and eat my body, which is broken for you, and not just for you, but for all of creation. And when you do this, he said, you will remember me. And into their surprised, shocked, certainly not comprehending eyes and minds, he looked and he took a cup of wine. And he looked deeply into its red strain. And as he looked into that crimson strain, the Bible said before them, he blessed the Father that he might offer his life for them. And then he turned to them and he said, this is my blood. What ominous words. This is my blood shed, but not just shed. This is my blood shed for you. And as often as you drink it, you remember me. Within 20 years, the Christian church had moved from believing that communion, the Lord's Supper, was something that we did simply to remember Jesus and everything that He did. It was more than that. 
communion in those first decades was just their way of saying, we honor what Jesus did and we will never forget. But within 20 years, they begin to realize that the body of Christ, this piece of bread, this blood that was shed, this cup of wine was more than the flesh of a bronze-skinned Galilean from Nazareth. They realized that this body, this blood, this flesh was not just Jesus, but this body, this blood was every human being who called Jesus Lord. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 spoke to the Christian church there at Corinth, and he said, when you gather together to have church, you actually are doing more harm than you're doing good. You gather together to have church, and you're disadvantaging your own souls in that process. And he said, here's why. Because when you gather together, as you are preparing to receive the Lord's Supper, you have a fellowship meal that was called the agape. And he said, in that agape, just like the potluck we're about to have, you see, the early church knew that the first Lord's Supper came out of the Passover, so they wanted that supper to always be rooted in an actual practical supper. And so the early church for a hundred years had this agape love feast, and at the end they would break down the elements into communion. And Paul told the church at Corinth, he said, a terrible thing is happening in the process of your potluck. He said, some of the poorest in your church that don't have the capacity to bring food are being left out. Not only is there a misdistribution of wealth and means and goods in the world, but Paul said, to your great shame, even in the church, the rich eat best and the poor eat worst. And not only are the rich gluttonous in front of the deprivation of the poor, but in the church, he said, some of the rich are even getting drunk. He looked at them, and this is Paul's admonition about getting drunk. He said, do you not have homes to do that in? <laughs> that wasn't exactly the teaching I was looking for back in the days of teetotaling. He said, you have homes. You can do that there. But you're bringing this misdistribution even into the church. And Paul then spoke these ominous words. He said, so when you take the Lord's Supper within the framework of a misdistribution of goods, even the substance of food. When in the church there are big eyes and little U's, when caste systems and hierarchies enter the church, Paul said it would have been better for you to have never attended and certainly never taken the Lord's Supper. Paul said, because when you diminish a poor person within the church, his frame was, his statement was, you are not discerning the Lord's body. He went in the next chapter, chapter 12, and gave us, gave us that illustrious, famous chapter called the body chapter, where he explains we are all a part of the body of Christ. Some people are really flashy parts, and other people are less flashy parts. But he said, I want you to know that the less flashy parts get more honor with God because the flashy parts get their reward already. But God sees those parts of the body that may not be quite as visible as others, but they're just as important. Well, we could run with that for a little bit, but I think I can leave you with that illustration. There are parts of the body that maybe we're even ashamed of, but they do incredibly important works. That's what the old pastor was saying. And he said, so I want you to know that you're taking, here was the scripture that scared me forever. He said, you're taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. I heard that for years. You cannot 
take the Lord's Supper as an unworthy person. And so I remembered every mistake that I'd ever made because I heard an adjective and a noun. I was the noun, and the adjective was a description of my behavior and my life. An unworthy person cannot take the Lord's Supper, but that's not what Paul said. Paul said this is not about an adjective and a noun. It's about an adverb. It's about the way you do what you do. You're taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, and you are failing to discern the Lord's body. So within 20 years, the apostle realized as children, as children on our border are still detached from their parents, Paul was simply saying to not discern the Lord's body, to take the supper in an unworthy manner. He was simply saying there's no way of honoring this olive-skinned one named Jesus while dishonoring the many brown-skinned ones named Jesus. And if you want to try to honor Jesus without honoring Jesus, that little boy separated from his parents, he said, you might as well just put the wine and the bread on the shelf. Because the understanding came to them quickly that Jesus' body was more than that one carpenter from Nazareth. Jesus' body was everyone who called him Lord. So communion is not just the genuflecting of us heavenward to the place where that one went back, but it is the recognition of those who sit near us, those who need us most at our side. But as the church has continued to break bread and drink the cup of the Eucharist, not just for 20 years, within 20 years they had shifted from one man to all the disciples of Jesus, but 20 centuries have expanded our understanding even further of the body of Christ, and we now know, as the early Christians soon realized, that the body is not less than Jesus, it's more. And the body is not less than Christians, it's more. And the body is not less than all human beings, it is more. And as Richard Rohr and many others are saying to us now, the body of Christ is not just humanity and a species, it is more. It's not just this planet, it's more. The body of Christ, the visible image of the invisible God is all of creation. So for 2,000 years we have been unfolding every time we bite into the Lord's Supper. It's not just a reflection of a static memory. It is an understanding that the body of Christ is bigger. It's not just Jesus. It's not just Christians. It's not just religious people. It's not just humans. It is all of creation. So if that's true, Communion, then, is first the acknowledging of and then the receiving of creation's brokenness into our bodies. When we break the bread, we are not simply reminding ourselves of what happened on a hill far away. But when we break the bread, we are reminding ourselves not just of what Christians are suffering with. When we break the bread, we are not just reminding ourselves of what humanity is suffering with. But when we break the bread, we are reminding ourselves of all of creation's brokenness. And when the church breaks the bread and takes the cup, we are taking all of creation's brokenness into our bodies. But we are not taking that brokenness into our bodies in despair or simply to grieve or to simply elicit tears from our heart. We are taking that into our body. We are taking creation's pain and sorrow into our body. And we are intentionally in that moment 
receiving those broken elements that we might process them, that we might digest them, that we might metabolize them. And eventually that bread and that wine literally becomes the life of your body. In other words, we are taking in death and we are metabolizing it into life. This is communion. The bread of communion literally becomes the flesh of you. Communion is the divine healing of creation through the body of creation. Communion is the body of Christ taking in the body of Christ. Communion is brokenness receiving brokenness. And it is not an act of resignation. It's not an act of despair. It's not, a, it's not an act of hopeless reflection on a hill far away, but it is a it is a statement, a proclamation of hope and promise and transformation. Friends of mine just yesterday lost their 27-year-old daughter who is a young wife and a young mother. I was talking to them earlier, and I told them that we would be taking the Lord's Supper today. And I told them, they had asked me, would you please have your congregation pray? So Andy and Kay Bruner, who are now in the, in, in the wake of losing a 27-year-old daughter, seeing their grandbaby without a mother, they reach out to a congregation and they say, pray. And there is no better prayer than for you, dear mothers and fathers, to take that piece of bread, feel it broken, and take it in, to take their grief into your body and hope that through the torn flesh of their life, the spilled blood of their life, you take their brokenness in with eyes wide open. Communion is that moment when we are admitting pain, we are admitting imperfection, we are admitting brokenness, we are admitting wounding and death, but we are not only admitting these things, we are proclaiming healing, wholeness, abundance, reconciliation, and eternal life. So then we receive the gifts of heaven through the earthly elements of bread and wine, and we do so with sobriety, and we admit that all is not at peace in this world. We admit that there are still children waiting to be reunited with their parents, that there are still refugee camps all over this world where injustices are supreme. And we simultaneously receive these elements with great hope that all shall be well, all shall be well. And again I say, all manner of things shall be well. And love will win even though at times it seems it's down several runs in the bottom of the night. Communion. The taking in of brokenness into brokenness that it might be metabolized into life. This, Jesus said, remembers. What does it mean to remember? It is not simply a cognitive reflection. It is a remembering of all the broken pieces remembered until they're together again. As we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, Nathaniel, our intern, who's just an incredible young man, is going to sing, and musicians can come, and those who are going to attend to the Lord's Supper, you can go to your stations. We'll have two stations here, one in the back. The one in the back will have grape juice and gluten-free. These will have normal bread and wine. But I remember when Stan Jr. was in second grade, he got off the bus one day. I was waiting for him in the front yard. I remember I had our ball gloves and our bat and... He's a pretty emotional kid. He got off the bus, and Steve, he walked down 
the stairs of the bus, and I'm standing there, and I hold out the glove to him, and he walks right past me, straight in the house. He was visibly upset. I went in the house, and I said, hey, bub, I thought we were going to play ball today. He said, I don't feel like playing. I asked him, I said, what's wrong? And he sat down, and in the broken, halting way that a second grader would. He said, well, there's a new boy in my class. And he didn't say anything for a moment. And I said, well, what about him? He said, well, I don't know. Seems like he's having a really hard time. I said, what do you mean a hard time? And this little seven-year-old boy said, well, and I knew he was thinking about himself at this moment. He said, nobody really wants to sit with him at lunch, and nobody wants to play with him at recess, and he cries a lot. And nobody wants to be his partner in classroom exercises, and he, it really upsets him. I asked my son, instead of saying, well, aren't you going to sit with him? Aren't you? I just asked him. I said, well, what do you think about that? And he shrugged his shoulders and said, I don't know. I said, well, maybe a better question is, um, how does that make you feel? And I'll never forget, he um, put his head down. He said, um, really bad and really sad. And so I just held the space there for him a little bit, and he said, actually, one of my friends was really mean to the kid on the playground today, made him cry real bad, something about leaving the kid out of a game of kickball. Stan told me that day, he said, I went ahead and played in the game, but I wished I hadn't because I kept looking over. He kept looking over at the ostracized boy on the sidelines. He said, I just kept, he said, I really couldn't play. I just kept looking over at him. So then I asked him, I said, well, what do you think you should do about it? And he said, I think I ought to sit with him tomorrow. I said, I think that would be a good idea. Following day, when he got off of the bus, I asked him how it had gone. And he said, really good. He said, I ate lunch with the boy, and another of my friends sat with us, and then we invited him to play with the group of buddies at recess. And he said, I'm going to eat lunch with him every day from here on out, but he's not very good at kickball. And I thought, even back then, Stephen, a lot of Christian churches do first communion in second grade. And at that time, our church didn't. And I thought to myself, in the absence of first communion at second grade, Stan Jr. went ahead and did first communion at an elementary lunch table. Because where there's gluten-free or grape juice or wine or unleavened or leaven, Dear God in heaven, good Christians, that is not the point. Communion is anywhere we with great hope recognizing that if the same Jesus, if the same Spirit who raised Him from the dead dwells in us, 
we have the ability over cheeseburgers at lunch with a second grade boy or metaphysically in a room where we think about a couple of parents who lost and a husband who lost a 27-year-old wife. We think about a planet. We think about children on the border. We think about the brokenness of the world. We have the capacity as people of resurrection to literally take brokenness into us, even into our broken grid of life. And as it breaks and as it metabolizes deep into our being, it not only gives flesh to our bodies, but it gives flesh to the soul, not only our soul, but the soul of all creation. This, brothers and sisters, is why we take the Lord's Supper. And it is central, and it is beautiful, and it heals the world one bite at a time. Can you say amen? Let's bow our heads and still our hearts as we prepare to receive these elements. Sweet Christ, search us now. As we have said many times, forgive us of those things that we've done that we ought not have done. Forgive us of those things we haven't done that we ought to have done. Cleanse our hearts now. Give perspective to our souls, our minds. We are not reflecting on simply a cross and one man 2,000 years ago. That man has elevated our minds to all things. We have power as we take this bread. May we metabolize it in hope, faith, hope, and love. May we digest it into wholeness even now as a congregation. May this be the hope of communion in us. And may this communion called Grace Point be healers of a broken world. We pray these things in Christ's name. And God's people said, wherever you would like to go, you can come. And we often say you may have to stand in line a while, but that may be where the beauty happens. So if you would come receive the elements, you can take them there. You can go back to the seat however you would like.